Radio Mano Papachango. Hi Chris, this is Mark from Baltimore, currently sailing a catamaran from Grenada to Panama. We're about uh, 100 miles north of Aruba right now. Just got off my night watch, waiting for the sun to rise, smoking a Cuban, listening to your podcast with Patrick Harris and enjoying life. So I hope you're doing the same, man. Take it easy. Hey Chris, this is Nate coming to you from Syracuse, New York, not too far from Geneva and Kaz, where I believe you spent a good chunk of your life. Uh, I'm 26, quit my job a couple years back as an environmental engineer, just to pursue, you know, a more meaningful, simple life and um, doing the gigging musician thing and basically whatever I can do to get a little bit of cash to get by and still have the freedom to, you know, go swim in a lake at 11 a.m. on a Tuesday and crack a beer after so I uh, just want to let you know your podcast has been a huge part of why I'm here and uh, currently finishing up the insulation of my tiny house I got parked in a wooded lot here in the city and uh, you're in my ears very often and uh, I appreciate that I think a lot of people do as well so uh, much love man hi everyone this is Maya I'm driving home from work right now in Williams Oregon um, I've been working at a microgreens farm for the last year or so, and I just listened to the Aaron Ralston episode while I was working, and it's an amazing story, and it really gives me a new appreciation for all the beautiful things in my life, as well as all the hardships and the heartbreaks and all that good stuff, all the stuff that makes me human and that makes life what it is. Anyways, much love. Thank you so much, everyone. Radio Mano Papachango. Hello, everybody. It's a rainy day in Topanga. It's the first time it's rained here in months and months. I went out last night in the uh, sort of a steady, slow rain, maybe an hour after it had started, and man, the smells were incredible. It was just like all this aroma, all these beautiful living scents were released it smelled eucalyptus and pine and I don't know I couldn't couldn't even begin to name most of the things that I was picking up but it was just beautiful so it looks like uh, the rainy season is finally coming to Southern California uh, which will be nice to see it get green again Uh, lots going on I can tell you about some some news. Before I do, however, let me tell you that this episode is with a guy named Charis Ford, formerly known as the Granola Ayatollah of Canola, I believe. That was one of his monikers. Um, I first met Charis in, must have been 2010, uh, maybe... Yeah, it was it was early in 2010 because it was just before Sex at Dawn came out. Um, and I think we probably talk about this in our conversation. But I met him um, 
because my friend Andy Weil, who is a famous doctor, you probably have seen him, the big white beard, sort of a Santa Claus looking dude who basically introduced the concept of uh, complementary medicine to the West. He was a real guru of the notion that um, other medical traditions had a lot to teach us and that the Western medical tradition wasn't um, the exclusive and uh, all-knowing, all-seeing, godlike, scientific edifice that many people considered it to be. Anyway, Andy Weil, um, before he got into that kind of stuff, was writing a lot about uh, psychedelics. And so that's how I came across his work from his early books, The Marriage of the Sun and the Moon, The Natural Mind. And then uh, I became a big fan of his and wrote him a, a letter in the middle of the night not dissimilar to some of the emails I get from some, some of you, um, sort of saying, hey, I'm, you know, 29 or 30 or whatever I was, and I'm not sure what I'm doing with my life. And, um, you know, I thought maybe you could offer some advice. And anyway, uh, that's a long story for another time. But Andy responded to me and uh, we became friends and have been friends ever since. And he put me in touch with Cheris. And Chara happened to be traveling at the time with Daryl Hanna because they were, uh, I think they were at a biofuels conference. And she's um, a serious environmental activist. So she was uh, helping to bring attention to the cause and speaking at the conference. And anyway, you may have heard me tell the story before, but this is... This is basically how it came to pass that Daryl Hannah is the first person who ever asked me to sign a copy of Sex at Dawn. It was through Charis. Charis means hashish, by the way, uh, in India. If you buy Charis and hashish, and uh, I guess uh, Charis's parents were hardcore hippies. If you want to know more about Charis after you listen to this, uh, I would recommend that you go to the Monkey Tooth podcast, which you should check out anyway. Andrew is a very cool guy. He and his wife and his dog are traveling around North America in a van exactly like Scarlett Johansson. Same model, same color, same everything, same year, I think. Um and their intention, they went up to Alaska this summer and they've been uh, doing a podcast with folks they meet along the way, including Ricardo Serpa, who they were kind enough to send my way, which is how he got on this podcast. Anyway, um, I know that Andrew is releasing this week uh, an episode with Charas and his wife and his kids. Um, so if you dig the dude, as I'm sure you will, uh, and you want to dig deeper into him and his life, you can check out the Monkey Tooth podcast and meet the family who were out of town when Cassie and I dropped in. News to tell you about. First of all, I spoke to my editor, Ben, yesterday at Simon & Schuster. He has read the manuscript of Civilized to Death, and he likes it a lot. So, boom, that is finally happening. That's the good news. The bad news is that publishing is conventional publishing takes a long time. So the release date, the pub date is going to be next fall, a year from now. So for those of you chomping at the bit 
to get your hands on a copy of Civilized to Death, it's going to be another year. That's assuming that I'm still alive, Simon Schuster is not bankrupt, and the world has not ended. Ocean currents have not stopped circulating. Giant volcanoes have not erupted. Asteroids have not impacted the planet, and um, et cetera, et cetera. So assuming life continues more or less as we know it, that book will be out a year from now. I'll keep talking about it in the meantime, but at least I'm talking about something that's actually going to happen. Uh, what else can I tell you? I'm uh, Kyle Tierman, big wave surfer, uh, friend, and I have been working on a secret project that we're now ready to tell the world about. The idea came to us. We were hiking back here in Topanga one day, and Kyle's a big environmental activist and it's very tied into that world. And we were talking about how one of the problems with environmental activism is getting people to listen is hard because it's so depressing. The news is so unrelentingly heavy and bad and dark. And and we're you know talking about how much we enjoy hanging out with comedians. And Kyle's been doing uh, stand-up, open mic nights, and really thinking about comedy. And, and we came up with this idea of just surrendering to the darkness and going so far over to the other side that we find some comic relief. And so we came up with this idea for an award show called the motherfucker awards, which will be granted to those who have done the most to make mother earth scream the loudest in the past year. And, uh, you know, like, the idea is let's celebrate you know, that there's this struggle happening between the earth and corporate interests and um, earth is losing. So let's celebrate the winners, right? Let's, let's give them their due. And so the whole thing is this tongue in cheek celebration of those who are doing the worst, the most to um, make the planet scream the loudest. So the motherfucker awards, I mean, I personally, here's a secret. When we were talking about this, I was just like talking out my ass as I normally do. Just blah, blah, blah. Wouldn't that be funny? Well, Kyle, follow through Kyle. He took the idea and ran with it and he hasn't let it go. And he's basically put it all together. And so we're going to have the motherfucker awards here in Los Angeles at the Miracle Theater in Inglewood on December 4th. Tickets are on sale. Uh, I'm going to pause this so I can tell you exactly what the website is. If you are going to be in Los Angeles in early December or want to come to Los Angeles in early December, you can get tickets to the Motherfucker Awards at the website, which is, wait for it, themotherfuckerawards.com. Uh, pre-sale tickets are on sale now. They're 15 bucks. It's gone up to 25 bucks at the end of this month, I believe. And they're selling fast already, even though this is really the first we've spoken about it publicly. Um, the idea is, uh, that there will be awards given in six categories. And in each of those categories, a well-known stand-up comedian will accept the award on behalf of the winner and give um, a short acceptance speech. 
Uh, there's going to be, I, I, I don't know if I'm allowed to tell you. Well, the Yes Men will definitely be there. Check out the Yes Men. If you don't know who they are, you should. Uh, and I believe Simon Rex, a.k.a. Dirt Nasty, will be doing a, uh, a musical performance. Uh, and I guess I'm going to, I'm, I'll tell you the other comics that are going to be involved as they're confirmed. I'll tell you Duncan Trussell is not going to be able to, um, appear, but he has very generously been helping us with, uh, the writing and the sort of conceptualizing of the project. So maybe he'll be in the audience. I don't know. He's he's involved in a lot of stuff right now. And uh, he's so he's trying to keep his focus on what pays the bills. Anyway, Motherfucker Awards, December 4th, Miracle Theater, Los Angeles, California. I hope you can make it. All right. Last bit of news for you is that Casilda is leaving in a couple days to go to Africa uh, where she's going to be spending some time with family there. She's got a beautiful granddaughter who's just over a year old. Um, her daughter's there, her daughter's husband, her son-in-law, and uh, she also has other family there, her mother-in-law from her first marriage, who she's very close to. Uh, so she's going to spend some time there uh, with family, reconnecting with them, uh, you know, being a presence in, in the life of her granddaughter and, and uh, hanging out with her mother-in-law. And she's going to do some volunteer medical work in Mozambique, uh, which is sort of a closing of a circle for her. She spent seven years, as most of you will know, if you heard the episode with her, episode 100 and 279, I think, are the two that we've done. Um she spent seven years working in the bush in Africa, um, basically going from village to village and treating all sorts of different ailments and, and situations that she found there. And it was an incredible experience for her, incredible learning opportunity. And so she's going back there and going to return to some of those villages and hopefully do some medical work there. And we'll see what happens if she finds um, a situation that she's very happy with and comfortable with. Maybe I will be relocating to Africa, at least for part of the time, maybe semi-permanently. Nothing's permanent in this life, of course. Um, but uh, in any case, I'll bring you along wherever I go. We're looking into all sorts of possibilities. To be honest, I don't want to bore you with all the details, but... Um, the political situation in the United States right now is not conducive to immigration, to getting a green card, to going through all this process. Um, and so that's that underlies a lot of this decision. And, and she's been hanging out here and it's been great, but, you know, she's got important things to do. So she's going to be in Africa and I will keep you updated on that as I move around in response to whatever she finds down there. Uh, lastly, just a, a reminder, get that tangentially reading book. We've got the two eBooks that are in the works coming soon. Um, but I keep forgetting to mention that the initial tangentially reading book, which is more of a sort of a survey of lots of different guests, you know, Duncan and Joe Rogan and 
uh, Mary Roach and Andy Weil and Stanley Krippner and all these different people are in that book. Uh, you can get it if you're in the United States. You can get the full color version uh, from my mom at the website, uh, tangentiallyspeaking.com. You'll see the store there, same place you get all the t-shirts and the beer cozies and the stickers and whatever swag uh, we've got. Mom's got in the garage there. Um, and if you're elsewhere in the world, you can either order it from whatever your closest Amazon source is, or you can get the ebook, which is also on up on amazon.com. Uh, we had the, the, uh, book transformed or, or whatever the word is into an ebook, um, a few weeks ago, and I keep forgetting to mention it. So if you read stuff on your phone or your laptop or your Kindle or whatever, you can get tangentially reading as the ebook. All right. I think that's enough. I think I've covered everything. Thank you. As always, to those of you who support the podcast financially, whether it's through Patreon, through ordering cool stuff on Amazon. Oh, speaking of which, I keep, that's another thing I keep wanting to mention and keep forgetting. Um, Amazon. Thank you. You guys, I, you know, I don't talk about that a lot, but people who use my affiliate link on Amazon... Uh, a lot of them have just sort of bookmarked it. And so it's always there. And I think you probably forget it and I forget it. But some people buy, for example, somebody bought a Honda 7,000 watt, super quiet, lightweight inverter, and it was $4,000. So if you need to buy something like that for work or, you know, whatever, if you're a purchasing manager for a company or you know someone who is and they buy a lot of supplies from Amazon, if they go through the affiliate link, that is a source of uh, great financial um, support for me, not for the podcast. Amazon does not support this podcast, but you know, what goes around comes around, things flow. And uh, yeah, so they spent $4,000 on that inverter, 8% of that came to to me $319.92 so whoever you are who did that thank you so much and if you want to get in touch and you know hit me up for some t-shirts or signed copies of books or whatever the hell I can give you please do I'll be happy to uh to send some love out your way all right that's enough news from me I will since I'll be on my own a lot more I'll be doing more of the um Roma episodes, you know, because those sort of come to me. I'm here alone at night. I've had a beer. I'm kind of like, eh, I don't feel like reading. I don't feel like watching any movies or anything. Maybe I'll just like uh, do a Roma and, you know, talk to my invisible friends. So, you know, when Cassie's around, we hang out and, and those moments don't come as, as frequently. So uh, since I'm going to be on my own again for a while, those moments will come more frequently and I'll be... Um, you know, connecting with you in that way again. So there's the upside to every downside. All right, y'all. Uh, I just went through that uh, intro and replaced every time I said my guest name because I was mispronouncing it. I called him Charis and it's actually Charis. So if you hear weird, if you just heard weird sound changes, that's because I just tacked in the Charis every, everywhere I said his name. 
Uh, if you want to hear, I play a couple of his raps in this uh, episode, but if you want to hear more of them or you want to see Charis in action, make sure to go to my website, tangentiallyspeaking.com, and uh, look for the Charis Ford episode. Um, I forget what number it is right now, but uh, yeah, you'll find it. There's a search button. There's a search feature. It's This is all newfangled and highfalutin. So anyway, Charis Ford, uh, I've got some uh, videos that we took of him doing these raps, and I hope you enjoy this conversation, and I will talk with you soon. Hope everything's going great for you out there. I'm sitting at an undisclosed location in uh, somewhere in Colorado, looking out on a what, what is that? Is that a, it's not a pasture. It's a, it's yeah, like I would a, say it's a, a pasture or a meadow or a field. A big field, big ass field that apparently hey, was full of teepees at some point, and I can imagine those teepees there very yeah. easily. Yeah, it's like a hunting ground. I think people came in the summer to uh, to to hunt elk and to and to maybe tribes possibly because there's hundreds of teepee mounds out there. And, uh, yeah, so, I mean, it doesn't really make sense if it wasn't, like, a seasonal kind yeah. of gathering place. Yeah, I can see that. I mean, they would have seasonal gatherings. Is uh, Have you wandered out there? Have you found spear points or anything? Yeah, we do find shards and, and uh, points from time to time. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm with uh, Charis Ford, formerly known as the Granola Ayatollah of Canola. Yeah, Got in, it right in my previous incarnation. Yeah, that's it. Now, I've told a story... Actually, I should tell you the story. I don't think you know the story. So, the way you and I met, yeah. have we ever talked about that from my perspective? No, no. So, uh, I'm in Barcelona shortly before Sex at Dawn was to come out. And I had sent a pre-publication copy to Andy Weil, and, and Dr. Andrew Weil, and, because I was, I was hoping he'd give it a blurb, which he did beautiful guy Getting a little breeze here yeah. i was just gonna turn so that my yeah and uh so i get a i get an email from andy saying you know i've given uh, a friend of mine he's coming to barcelona uh for a week or something I, I i hope you don't mind i gave him your your email your phone number and i was like yeah great no problem so i'm imagining some doctor in his late 60s early 70s coming for a you know an oncology convention and i'm supposed to like take him to a cool restaurant and try to like make sure he doesn't get pickpocketed and i'm happy to do it i'm sure he's going to be an interesting man but nothing happens i don't get a call i don't get a call then finally one night at you know 7 30 or 8 o'clock i get a call like hey man this is this is andy wilde's friend charis i'm like this is not a 70 year old dude <laughs> <laughs> we're having a party on the beach can you come and i'm like uh i, I guess like, bring a guitar i don't have a guitar i'll find a guitar all right and and bring a copy of your book my i'm with a friend and and she wants a copy she read some okay okay fine so i find a friend with a guitar and a car and we get a copy of the book and we go to this beach party and uh the friend was Daryl Hannah, who you were traveling with. And working with, doing and working uh, with, environmental yeah. education stuff. Exactly. And, and Daryl and I actually, it was kind of nice because I think we both were, well, I, I don't know if you remember, there were these elastic triangular like pyramid things on the beach yeah. near this, this it, shelter where we were. And I was hanging in it. 
and she came out. I think she's not super socially. Yeah, she's a little. She's shy. A yeah, shy. And so she came out and climbed up, and the two of us hung in this spider web for, I don't know, half an hour or oh, something, great. chatting. It was really nice. And I had, and I had been singing the praises of your book because I'd read. Uh, I'd read Sex and Doll, my wife and I, and we just thought it was so cool. And so uh, I'd share it with Daryl, like, you got to check this out. And uh, so when I asked you to bring a book, it was, it it was, was for Daryl. Right. Yeah. So then at the end of the evening, it's like three in the morning or something, and uh, I gave her the book, and she asked me to sign it. And Daryl Hannah was the first person to ever ask me to sign a copy of Sex at Dawn. How cool is yeah. that? Isn't that crazy? That is really cool, yeah. The, the, the woman who starred in Clan of the Clan Cave Bear. Clan of the Cave Bear. Like the only legit movie about prehistory in the last 30 years. Is that right? Is that and she also was in uh, a, a, one of my favorite films called um, At Play in the Fields of the Lord. One of my favorite books, really. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is also about prehistory in the sense that it's about an uncontacted tribe in the Amazon. Yeah. And she was in that as well. So it's like this strange, you know, stellar convergence of yeah. things that she would be, you know, not only just someone famous, but but that person. person. Far know? out. That's cool. Yeah. I didn't realize that. I didn't realize that. Yeah. I, in my, my memory of the thing was a little bit kind of like Kind of too little, too late. It, you know, you, it was a, it was dark. The party was it was kind of a windy, yeah, non. It was yeah. it wasn't this kind of sumptuous uh, environment. And I had a, a lot of a great deal of respect for you. And I kind of wanted the whole thing to be more fabulous, I guess. Oh, and it was this kind no, of you know great. last minute, late late night yeah. kind of thing. So that that's interesting. And there were interesting people at that party. Were they all your friends, or how did? That yeah, that was a um, that was an environmental uh, film fest. There's an uh, international environmental film fest in Barcelona called FICMA, and that's the acronym for Spanish words that I'm not going to be able to pull up. But yeah. uh, they're, Festival Internacional de Cinema. That's it. Yeah. <laughs> Ambiente or something. Ambiente, right? yeah. Yeah, yeah. So uh, FICMA is the oldest environmental film festival in the world. Oh, really? Yeah, the first, huh. I think. I think that's right. And um, when the short film, uh, there was a film called French Fries to Go, which documented my biodiesel project. Um, Me and a few friends realized in, in the late 90s that you could take waste vegetable oil from restaurants and process it into fuel for diesel vehicles and it was non-toxic and you know you could drink the stuff you know and, and they, they were throwing out the, the oil and I, I was super inspired by that. Well you guys figured that out? We didn't figure it out. It, it had been figured out in Germany oh, and there okay. was uh, there was a, another fellow named Josh Tekel who was a friend of ours you know he was whatever a, a coincidence that we were connected by the commune my wife was raised on, so we heard, we were early adopters. Is what right, it was. Okay. He 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 kind of took it from Europe to the states, and we were friends with him. So it happened pretty quickly that we got on that bandwagon. It wasn't a bandwagon then; it was a an idea, yeah. you know. Yeah. And it was a great idea. Uh, and so we we launched the first hundred uh, percent biodiesel city bus in the country. Um, you know. You know, it was just a really fun thing. And because I was friends with Daryl and I was doing this kind of cutting edge thing, we got a huge amount of media attention early in the 2000s. And, you know, we were on the Bill O'Reilly show. Oh, we were in Jesus. Newsweek. We were, you know. Was that hostile? The Bill no, O'Reilly no. He thing? was actually really friendly. Oh, really? Uh, yeah. 
and uh, and you know, Grassoline is the name of the company that I started to 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 Great do name. this work. You know, and so Grassoline it was on the cover of Scientific American. There was oh, this really? big picture Jesus. of of a of a field that was mowed into the shape of a gas pump. You know, like mm-hmm. you know, how like a crop circle kind oh, of right, right. mowed job that you know, haircut job. Mow job. <laughs> <laughs> but anyways, you know, so the, a lot of stuff happened, and then these, this this doctor from Telluride made a film about uh, our work yeah. and it was very funny and it was very short and it had me doing my environmental rap thing which I kind of oh, started yeah. rapping uh, on the farm in Tennessee and so uh, I was rapping you know there's a shower scene it was just all this random shit and there was some celebrity cameos Dr. Weil uh, made an appearance and you know whatever there was a, a few different celebrities that had made an appearance in the film so it, it, it had this like cachet or whatever right. and so film festivals around the world were picking it up as part of their film festival thing and so we were getting flown to Italy and to you know Spain and da 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 oh, and, that. Nice. and so that's how we were there we, we'd come out oh, for the film okay. festival and she was bringing attention yeah and, she yeah. was yeah and she was really excited about it because yeah. it was she's been an environmentalist she's got a, a she's time. got a big environmental yeah. streak and she's yeah. done a lot with uh animal you know like she she um narrated a documentary about uh I don't know, you know, several documentaries about the environment. And right. she's a very, she's an amazing person. She really has, over the years, made her life about activism. You know, she's done a yeah. lot, you know, of, of work. She was know. at Standing Rock, I think. She was at Standing Rock. She was um, arrested in Washington, D.C. at the square for right. protesting fracking. There's a right. great picture of her with handcuffs behind her back being led into like a paddy wagon and she's like with what you know wrist she's got she's doing a peace symbol nice. to think yeah she's she's done a huge amount of work with um uh bringing awareness you know she, that's her thing is bringing awareness to issues that she feels passionate about mountaintop removal hmm. uh has been an issue now with monsanto and the neonicotinoid pesticides and, the bees, and the bees so she you know i mean that she and her partner neil young have have both you know kind of joined forces to make every bit of the difference that they can you know uh, you know with it with you know their ability to bring attention to this right. stuff and, and you worked with neil as environmental yeah so I, I, or something? yeah so uh neil reached out to me he was going on tour and and was looking for an environmental kind of campaign manager because he had this idea maybe we could bring group environmental groups or uh you know social uh justice groups with us on tour hmm. so that the fans as they come you know into the venue you know before the show they could meet you know activist organizations and get educated because yeah. they were committed to he was committed to that and Daryl was committed to that and so they wanted to have something happen and yeah. uh, she recommended me and and uh, I hadn't met Neil at that time and so but we did meet and I proposed to him this idea which was basically like kind of a retro futuristic farmers market type setup with these kind of rocket tents with these kind of hemp signs and flags and lights and you know just kind of this festive familiar like come mm. check whatever's so the happening fans can mingle through the through the thing and right. then i would invite you know 6 to 12 uh organizations and i kind of I thought like it would be really nice to kind of simplify, if you will, uh, the the spectrum of activist 
topics. So indigenous people's rights, mm. corporate accountability, right? Uh, you know, you know, climate change, renewable energy, organic farming, biodiversity, you know, protection of of endangered species, what have you. Like, there's if you sit down long enough, you come up with a list, yeah. and I then coagulated, if you will, or or kind of distinguished, like, well, this could this set of activist efforts could generally fit under this topic. Right. So I made six tents with signs that said things like earth ecology that could generally take, you know, people who are working on protecting the oceans or saving a forest in the area and then climate and energy. So I could generally bundle mm. renewable energy or right. climate change activism. And so the the heart so the design was a lot of fun, you know. Conceptualizing was a lot of fun. Then, of course, making it actually happen was a, a, a lot more work than I had realized. And then being a roadie, you know, basically I was yeah. an environmental roadie. Or, you know, he's been taking a break for the last year and a half. But uh, you know, we went all over the world, fifty uh, cities. You know, you're on the whole tour. Yeah. Oh yeah. We the wow. we pack. You know, the boxes with all the tents and signage and everything. You know, at the end of the night, pack it up and. Down the road we go, you know. It's a really grueling schedule to, to be on a rock tour, and uh, but the thing that was really turned out to be the hardest was to do all the administration and the kind of preparatory work, find the organizations, communicate, coordinate, get make sure everybody shows up with their materials, you know, that sort of thing. Finding you know each other, but one of the things that really was satisfying and kind of I think was the the big win of the. The idea was that I, when we, I would bring the organizations from the region. So if we're in nice. Dublin, okay. so it wasn't the same people all the time. I would find you localized the it. Dublin, yeah, inv- you know, endangered species efforts, the Dublin organic farming efforts. Extra work for you. That was a lot of work. More relevant, but way more. Yeah. So when people came in, they not only learned about what the issues were, but they also connected with their regional groups and. You know that was the that was the most rewarding thing. Seeing people, you could tell like this person just became a lifelong activist right. because of what happened here. You know, right. Right. and and there was a lot of things that <laughs> that I know like that that were happening, and I was so grateful that that, that I got to be part of facilitating that and kind of you know whatever I, I like the term lead from behind. You know, it's like I love this kind of facilitating you know transformation mm. or whatever. Mm. So I really like that. But it was so exhausting yeah. to to like do all that prep work, then get you know you we we would be waking up at five, going to bed at three in the morning. You know it, it was roadie life, so there's a lot of drinking and you know people doing cocaine and whatever. You know it's you know it's roadie life, and uh, so it was a rigorous schedule. People we're working really hard, and you know to, just to get the farmers market. I'm going to call that we called it the village, but to set it up physically each time. You know like pop this thing up and get it all festooned and make sure everybody gets the table by the time some of the most amazing people on the earth had showed up i was like beat <laughs> i'm gonna go get a beer yeah. good luck saving the world yeah. and it was just yeah. an interesting thing so I like yeah. it was just and then you break it down put it in the trucks and and you know go so it was uh, it was exhausting and in some ways i kind of feel like you know i've done i spent 30 years doing environmental work and activism and it's like I can kind of pass the torch, you know. I'll go back out on the road with Neil when he's ready to do it again. But uh, but I'm not necessarily like chomping at the bit to right. leave my beautiful country home with my yeah. wife and kids and yeah. and go out and do more activism. Yeah. But you know, it was it was cool. That's I, I a unique it. opportunity. Yeah. 
Yeah, I I saw David Byrne play in Barcelona. He did uh, when you were talking about bringing the local people. You reminded me of him. Such a cool thing. He was on tour, and he had I don't know who it was, but somebody would line up local musicians in each town that he went to. So he had a different oh, backup band, backing band in each oh, town. Oh, that's really cool. And it was so cool. So he came out on stage and, you know, and they, he played a couple songs and then he's like, hey, you know, this bass player is from Barcelona and he plays in some band and they're going to be at the, you know, this place on Thursday night. You guys should all go and cool. And, you know, and so he'd go through and introduce each one and talk about what kind of music they played. And like, what a cool thing, man, you know, to like, even though you're from somewhere else, you're connecting local people to local people. That's it. It's a really That's good it. approach to life, yeah. I think. Yeah. 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 So we should say, I, I want to uh, give a shout out to our mutual friend, Andrew, whose last name I don't remember. Do you remember? Oh, Couch. Yeah. Andrew, Andrew Couch. Couch. Okay. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Oh, not Andrew Weil. Yeah. <laughs> shout out to him, too. But <laughs> Shout out Andrew to Andy Couch. Weil. Um, because you did his first podcast, the uh, Monkey Tooth podcast. Yeah. yeah. And I've been on the podcast, and he's driving right now in Alaska with his yeah. wife and dog Pele. Uh, Super in, sweet in a van folks. just like ours. Did you notice? Yeah, these I heard vans? that. Oh, I heard that. Seen his no, van. I haven't seen his van. I mean, I saw pictures. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. It's exactly the same van. Yeah, yeah it's amazing. Uh, anyway, so people can hear more about your family background and all yeah. that on, yeah. on his podcast. Yeah, if you want to hear some granola raps, <laughs> there's a few on there. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. it's the first episode, so Andrew's voice doesn't come out very well for some reason, yeah. but you sound fine. Yeah. Um, yeah, Monkey Tooth Podcast, check it out. Back to you. You One thing you talked about in your conversation with Andrew that I was very interested to hear more about was when you talked about your mother, how she was um, an early uh, proponent of sort of holistic diet and... and yeah, holistic health What did you call it? Like, uh, there's some funny word you guys used. Was it around the macrobiotic yeah. thing? Well, we were, you know, we were raised macrobiotic, which means you, you, know, you don't eat bread, you don't yeah. eat sugar, you don't eat dairy, you don't even eat vegetables and fruits out of season, you don't eat much fruit, it's got seaweed involved, and it's just like, yeah. a, it's, not, it's one of the less exciting diets you can be on, you know, brown rice for breakfast, you know, yeah. steamed vegetables, no, not really salads particularly, there's not a lot of raw vegetables, and so, you know, we're raised in the 80s, you know, and, yeah. and everyone's eating Captain Crunch and, you know, whatever, <laughs> and we have to eat, you know, fucking steamed vegetables vegetables for breakfast yeah. so we called it macro it's macrobiotic but we called it macro neurotic nah, that's what it that's was macro neurotic exactly. yeah but my mom was really yeah she was on the front lines and it's one of the reasons i know andy is because i was raised in this you know holistic health andy community wild, andy wild dr wild yeah. Yeah. yeah and uh so i had a passion for that sort of thing and an understanding of it early in the cycle but yeah, yeah my mom was doing you so know you rebelled against it for a while um I rebelled for sure, but and you know, as a young, you know, whatever kid, I, yeah. I was into like eating junk food and stuff. But it wasn't a big. I didn't really rebel against the value set. Uh, uh, my brother was that guy. He he was like, you know, screw this hippie bullshit. I'm gonna go make millions and yeah. you know, eat you know all the meat I want and so whatever. He's, he's younger than you. He's a little younger than me, a yeah. year and a half. Yeah, uh, Boomer. That's his name. Boomer. Shandaken is his uh, actual name, but he goes by now. He goes by Peter. He's like straight. <laughs> 
you know, he's he's a, you know he's he's liberal in his thinking, but his life is is fairly you know whatever you know he, he, something you'd kind of expect from someone raised in Long Island who's gone mm. to business school kind right, of thing. Right. Super sweet friend. Of mine. Were you guys close growing up, or we were really close? Well, come teenage years, you know, we were a year and a half apart, so we yeah. had that sibling rivalry right. thing that you would get. <clears throat> but yeah, we were really close uh, as young as young brothers. Yeah. So you. One thing that you guys sort of passed over, and and if it's painful, we don't no, no. need to talk about no, no. It now. But no, no. you spent a lot of time caring for your mom. Yeah, a big, yeah, big part of your life. Big part of my life. Fifteen years. Yeah, yeah. Your when twenties. Yeah, when I was uh, eighteen, I guess a senior in high school, we got a call. My mom was on vacation with her uh, boyfriend. They were going skiing, <clears throat> and this woman is an amazing or was an amazing woman you know just like a the a hub of a huge community of people you know uh, you know like young people would come and be part of our circle just to kind of have her as a, a, a mother figure you know hmm. super loving uh funny very contactful and and leading this kind of holistic health thing in our region uh, uh you know she was just a, a, an amazing inspiring person and very physical like ran and swam and just like this like vital beyond hmm. the norm yeah and uh we get a call she's had a spinal cord injury she she was broke oh. her back tobogganing with her boyfriend and he he was on his knees behind her on a toboggan they hit a mogul he flew up and landed on her back oh, no. and so she was paralyzed and it, as it turns out she was paralyzed for the rest of her life um and uh it was devastating for everybody from, like just the lower from the body. waist down yeah. yeah yeah devastating for everybody. and she just wept and cried she was just bereft for yeah. a long time it was just as i was getting ready to go to college and you know i mm. you know i had a large mushroom experience that really transformed my life and i realized that i wanted to work with the land and grow my own food and all that sort of thing so i was on this kind of uh organic farming sustainable agriculture track that i was going to go to college and learn what i could and then go do a back to the land thing was my uh decision as a 16 17 18 year old um so I was on track. I was going to college. I went to this cool hippie school in Prescott, Arizona called Prescott College. And uh, and my brother, my boomer, um, was two years younger. He was sticking around. So it was kind of like, okay, mom, this sucks, you know, but boomer's going to help you and I'm going to go to college and whatever, it, you know. I was in college and I would talk to my mom on the phone and she was just heartbroken. You know, she was just heartbroken. You know, her life had gone, you know, from this amazing thing to this horrible thing. And my brother was younger and not really doing a great job of being there for her. And, you know, I was just doing some soul searching and I just thought I kind of ran it out, you know, like I did the math and it's like, okay, I wouldn't exist if this person hadn't given me birth. I would, you know, I would have been miserable if they hadn't cared for you well, wiped my butt, and you know, all the things, fed me, educated me. And it's like, what part of my autonomy or what part of my life is not appropriate to devote, to give back to her? And I just, the, <laughs> the only thing I could come up with was all of it. All is appropriate to give back to this person. And so I decided to drop out of school and, uh, and go back and care for my mom, which I did for about 15 years. And we decided, because she had this love of, of living in the wilderness too, so she bought a farm and I was gonna do the organic farming and I was gonna help her be in the country. And so we found this couple hundred acres in Tennessee mm. 
uh, you had to drive through these creeks to get there, you know, outhouse, no electricity, no phone. And here's my mom in a wheelchair and this, you know, 18 year old kid who've moved to rural uh, Tennessee to be to grow food and, and it, people just didn't even know what to make of us you know yeah, yeah. and i'd carry her we had lived on this uh, kind of steep hill in a stilt house so you could look over the valley and the garden and i'd carry her down to the garden and she would crawl and weed and you know it was a beautiful thing we had goats and bees and i foraged a lot for mushrooms and we had belgian workhorses i worked with the amish a lot um learning you know how to work horses and, and that sort of thing and it was a beautiful time and and my mom, being such an amazing person, I felt like, and then she died young. She died at 50. And so I had this experience with her where I got to know her as a friend, not as a parent. I got to serve her as a peer in some ways and, and a caregiver. And it just ended up being like the most powerful thing. And I got to really know my mom in a way that a lot of people don't get to know. Sure. Or they come back late in life or whatever. Yeah. So in a lot of ways, it was... By you know, in a very real sense, it was by far one of the most meaningful and satisfying and uh, love-filled and educational experiences. I just kind of got into this monastic state. You know, I, I'm not going to be out going to college, partying, doing all the things that everyone else is doing. I'm living deep in the hills of Tennessee with my mom. You know, it was really hard to score a girlfriend. I can tell you. <laughs> Would you like to move to the most redneck place in the world and live with a guy and his mother in a wheelchair in a place with no phone and electricity? Yeah. You know, yeah, hey, so it was a hard sell. But um, yeah. <laughs> That, but you actually managed. I did manage. I did manage. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It, it's funny, like when you describe the experience in Tennessee, it's it sounds like you were learning everything you thought you were going to learn at college, right? I mean, you it's were right. it's same right. subject matter. Yeah, and there was a, a, a side story, which is in college, I was I, I dropped out of college also because I realized that being in a classroom for four years, building up a bunch of student debt in order to be patted on the head by the dean and get a piece of paper so that I could go do something that's not gonna pay right. very well anyways, and then I'm not gonna really know how to do until I spend five years doing <sighs> do it. it. Yeah, and I'm not really yeah. gonna know how to do it where I live unless I do it where I live, because every environment is mm, different. Right. You're gonna farm in this place, and what's the soil like, and what's the wind like? And I just realized early and say I was getting straight A's, and you know the school was like, this guy is you know, an amazing, you know, it's gonna the future of the college. Someone said, you know, whatever. I was, I was doing a great job at school, and then I was like, what the hell am I doing here? I'm in the wrong thing. Yeah. So they kind of, it was kind of a convergence of my mom needed me, and I realized that I had no business in, yeah. in school. Yeah. You know. Yeah, interesting. Good decision. <laughs> I mean, it made to sense. The yeah, that it I mean, a decision. I, I, yeah, it was the yeah. decision. It was the right decision. It, yeah. it, it informed the way my life unfolded. And yeah. uh, but in that time is when I met my wife to be. It was while I was at school. I was studying permaculture, and that was the the vector by which uh, I found my partner. So that was. A, I'm glad I went. Yeah, you know? and now you guys are living in a yurt, raising two boys. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Fifteen and how old's the youngest? Eleven. Eleven. Yeah. yeah. Druid, uh, herbalist. Uh, the the kids are like these little magical little dudes. magical dudes. Yeah, <laughs> they fantastic. and it's really self made. You know, like I remember the last time we got there took them to get their hair cut and they were just protesting you know i was raised by hippies i get the long hair thing but somehow i was like you know you don't necessarily want to look like girls you kind of like let's have let's be able to play but walk on both sides you sure. know whatever that is you right. know, to walk in both worlds yeah and they were miserable they were screaming bloody murder like no what are they? now they got hair down the middle of their back and you know they're just they're, they're 
they're their own people. You know, people, you hear people say that, you know, you don't create your children. They're these unique, Yeah. they they blossom, you get to know them. And, and it's so true. You know, yeah. our kids are these like mysterious, fascinating, self-creating you know, yeah. characters. So you ever heard of a book called The Continuum Concept? No. It's really interesting. A, a woman, uh, I think it's, she wrote it in the 70s, probably. It's a cult classic, you know, uh, this woman. Um, it's just sort of a, a hippie. She wasn't an anthropologist or anything. She was just traveling around. I think she was in Italy, and she met a couple of guys there, and they were leaving to go to Venezuela and go hike back into some the Orinoco River Valley and check out some of the like people uncontacted or mm. you know very little contact tribes. Mm -hmm. And they asked her to come along, and she said, "Sure, why not?" And she went and. After a couple of weeks, the Italian dudes left and she stayed for a few years. And then she wrote this book, The Continuum Concept, which is large. It's about, you know, insights she gained living with this this very um, primitive tribe. Primitive. Yeah, I hate the word primitive. Yeah, I got you. Okay, you know let's call I mean? it. Yeah. Uh, 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 undisturbed yeah, culture. Uh, yeah. Ancient uh, pre culture. Yeah, even pre-agricultural sucks because yeah. it assumes everyone's on the track yeah, and yeah, they're yeah. just behind, yeah. you know? It's funny how the language yeah. like corners us into these biases. Very true. Very true. Um, but anyway, so she's with this tribe and, and it's, it's about the way they raise children. And the way they think of childhood and parenting and all this kind of stuff. It's really interesting. You just reminded me of it when you're talking about how these kids are, you know, we have this image in our society as, of kids as being like, I don't know, like, uh, like undifferentiated and like a loaf and you yeah. shape it and you're then you the cook sculptor. it. And, right. Yeah. Like you determine it somehow. Yeah. And their understanding is like, no, no, these beings are born and they're born complete. Yeah. Like that little toddler is a yeah. complete human being yeah. with the same expectation of dignity yeah. and respect yeah. as an adult. So your job is to water it. Your job is and, to, like, and to let yeah, it sort of get out of the way. Yeah. And but like a kid will try to do something when they're ready to. Yeah. So there's none of this like, you know, no, no, you're not ready for that yet. Kid says he's ready, he's ready, mm -hmm. you know, or at least yeah. he's ready to fail. Yeah, yeah. And, and like the kid's next to the fire, there's nobody saying, oh, get away from the kid, burns himself. He, he burns himself. Something. It's yeah. his business, yeah. you know. So it's a very sort of get the fuck out of the way yeah. approach to parenting, yeah. which is interesting, you know, in, a, in the context of a world where 20% of the kids die before they're five years old. So there's an acceptance of death that yeah. we don't have and in you're talking about world. this particular well hunter gatherers in general, just in general it's yeah. a pretty you know infant you mortality to, is pretty the nature the the less uh kind of like whatever longevity in the population well of kids of kids see yeah. there's a lot of confusion and people have heard me talk about this a million times so i won't go into it but Old people are old. Right. They make it. They make it into their yeah. 70s. Yeah. Right. So nobody's ever been old at 35. Right. Right. So um, when they say the average age of people's they're in the including past infant mortality was 35 in and everybody in the culture like, hey, you couldn't even make it past 35. But yeah. that's not the case. No. The, the case no. was the there was some infant mortality that was higher than it is now. Exactly. But if you made it past 15, you were probably going to make yeah. it to 60. Right. Exactly. Uh -huh. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and, there, and yeah, it's a huge source of confusion. I mean, I've, yeah. I've, 
quoted doctors saying, well, of course, you know, we have back pain in our 40s and 50s. The human body wasn't designed to last till, you know, past 35. And yeah. it's like, you're yeah. a fucking doctor, man. Wake <laughs> Kill up. the program. Yeah. yeah. There's a lot to know. You know, there's a lot. There's there a- is a lot to know, but that's pretty basic. <laughs> yeah. But it's a powerful, uh, you know, meme in the culture because yeah. it's so self-congratulatory. It is, right. It's like, oh, yeah, we have, you know, if we weren't doing this, we'd be screwed. Yeah. It's like, you know, you, well, you, have you, are, are you saying we're not screwed? <laughs> You and I were talking earlier. I was saying uh, we were talking about you know how my publisher is going to respond to Civilized to Death, and I was a little concerned they might think it's too radical, and uh-huh. you know, and I was describing the the basic argument, which is that you know maybe civilization isn't all it's cracked up to be. <laughs> but to I'm put bumped. it lightly. Um, you know, and maybe it's worth thinking about whether civilization has actually benefited yeah. the average human being. Let alone the and planet. And you were like, well, it's pretty obvious that it hasn't. Right. <laughs> where, I, where I was coming from is most people would say it's pretty obvious that it has, yeah, you know. Yeah. So it's it's interesting how radically different perspectives can yeah, be yeah 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 it's crazy yeah. but i mean yeah you, you, were, you were saying that you're, world is, you were saying that 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 the timing of when your book is is you know being considered by the publisher is you know paradoxically it's <laughs> for, fortuitous for the book because now we have yeah. shit hitting the fan right in ways that people across populations across belief systems are saying What's happening here? You know, yeah. whereas you're, you know, you're, it's it's 1980. You know, there's shopping malls and better. it's all good. Yeah, it's morning in America. We're living <laughs> in a material, and it's like <laughs> the hippies were wrong. You know, yeah, yeah. we don't need to worry about yeah. the whale. Everything's Wall good. Street surging. Yeah, we got this. Yeah. And 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 I think that became such the you know like it's like what is bill hicks you know go back to sleep america you know everything's yeah. fine you know yeah. we you know just go keep shopping you know and now we're like those chickens are coming home to roost and yeah. i think yeah maybe the publisher is one of those people who are like wait a minute this is a a serious fork in the road where we have to ask ourselves what what have, yeah. have we what hath we wrought yeah you know? well we'll see it'll be interesting because if yeah, I don't know if my editor listens to the podcast, so I should probably not <laughs> name him. <laughs> no, he's a great it's, guy. It's a little late. Super, you, you should say something about him. <laughs> love you. Love you, buddy. Um, no, but I mean, if they're if they want me to tone it down, yeah. I, I don't think that's going to work because yeah. civilized to mild discomfort. <laughs> civilized to awkward silence. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Just doesn't uh, have the same punch. But I mean, even like Sex at Dawn, you know, like I, I wanted to write that book years earlier and I just, you know, I'm the way my life is. I don't get away get around to shit. I'm a hunter gatherer. I'm like, I get to yeah. it when I get to yeah. it. You know, I'm not, I don't live by clocks and yeah. calendars very well. And, uh, but then it turned out that when it came out was perfect because enough, there was a critical mass of people who had seen how marriages fail, 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 fail. And enough people were ready to say, okay. What's going on here? What's going on? Yeah, because I think if it had come out five years earlier, it would have been like, ah, what are you talking about? Yeah. You know, come on. Of course we're monogamous. Everybody's monogamous. Look around you. We're all married. 
you know, and then it was like five years later, huh, we're all divorced. Right. <laughs> Maybe I should read that book. So who knows? Who knows? But anyway, enough yeah. about me. No, no, it's good. I, 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 <laughs> very handsome, <laughs> articulate, witty, oh, thank you. charming. Yeah. Oh, that's great. <laughs> and the podcast. Thanks, guys. Yeah, it was that real. Was great. That was fun. Um, well, what you said about the marriage thing is interesting <laughs> because, you know, I think about I mean, you're, you're a generation between kind of, I mean, I, I don't know if you would fall into the baby boomer category, but you Just seem like you're, end, yeah, you seem like you're between baby boomer and what my wife and I consider ourselves, you know, second generation hippies. So whatever, you know, I was born in Woodstock in 1969 yeah. to some flower children. And now, you know, I, I, I took those values and I, and I, you know, got into the environmental activism and growing yeah. food. And so yeah. kind of carrying that out, my wife as well, she was raised on a hot springs commune down in New Mexico. And she has a lot of those values. And then we're raising our kids with a lot of those values that they seem to enjoy. So that we're, we're onto the third generation of, 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 you know, the flower children portion of the baby, baby right. boomer. And, uh, you know, I don't know if, if this is, you know, common knowledge, but, uh, or at least in the, at this time in history, but the, the sixties, you know, at least in our families were wrought with, relationship dysfunction you yeah. know like uh, you know free love was uh, kind of the breaking of the ice of this whole monogamy thing and like stay together you know even if you're miserable it just wasn't working and the kids who were raised by the p families from the 50s were like screw that I don't want to end up in this kind of what's the Loveless. a great uh, line in uh, cold comfort is the English way you heard that Pink line, Floyd. Pink Floyd, yeah. yeah. Dark side of the yeah. moon. So that's, yeah. a, you know, that was, I think, what people were wanting to smash that, you know, that uh, it, it wasn't working. Yeah. It wasn't working. And so Dulcie and I were both kidnapped from our fathers by our mothers at the age of five, coincidentally. And for the same reason, our dads were drunks. And, uh, you, know, it was, it, you know, it was all good until it wasn't, you know. Pot and ecstasy, not ecstasy, pot and you know LSD uh, and free love, you know, and letting your armpit hair grow and and you know kind of living day to day was a lovely idea and it is a lovely idea. But like anything, you know, take pushed to the extreme, it becomes its own dark uh, problem. Yeah. And so there was just so much divorce and there was so much relational dis relationship dysfunction uh, in our parents, you know, generation, which was baby baby boomers. That there was just a lot of single moms, and yeah. that's what we we were raised by single moms, and a lot most of the people we knew were raised by single moms. There was a lot of alcoholic dads, and probably moms too. But you know the 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 stereotype was alcoholic fathers, and so when Dulcie and I got together, you know we were just naturally swinging the other way. We were naturally or you know inclined to be monogamous we were naturally inclined to be good parents to stay together to, right. to be there for our kids because mm -hmm. our experience was fairly you know kind of uh, at loose ends as far as like make sure your kids you know learn to play the violin or whatever you know yeah. uh, you know so it's just an interesting thing to watch that pendulum swing and yeah and and and, it, and, and your book is it, it's an interesting we were talking uh, before the podcast you and I about um, the models of relationship and the many different ways that people kind of get their their needs met, whether that's in open relationship or, you know, in the context of monogamy. And, uh, yeah, it's just an interesting thing that kind of the tick tocking of the of the 
the way people deal with relationships. Yeah, and in your case, it's interesting how you know some of the um, the values and traditions that you were raised with have stuck with you, and others you've swung the other way. Right. And and you sort of it'll be interesting to see where your kids are it will be in that. Yeah. Yeah. Be. Does it burn your ass when you hear people say the '60s were a failure? You know, it's interesting because, I mean, let's. It's it's just a, that's a deep question, right? Yeah. <laughs> right, because there's a psychedelic side of right. the '60s. Because all these different there's aspects the environmental have to be, side of the '60s. Yeah. There's the the you know naturalist oriented side, the loving you know right. oriented side. So there's the so racial many, and gender equality. Racial and gender equality. So yeah. I would say to someone who says uh, the '60s were a failure, is cussing allowed on this? Fuck yeah. I would say fuck you to those people. You have your <laughs> yeah. head up your ass. Yeah. You know, if you think the 60s were a failure, you, yeah. you go you eat know. your granola and <laughs> you, yogurt. You and got shut you the got you, you you should probably start meditating <laughs> and and try and ask yourself, you know, where the where the hell your head is at. Yeah. Because if love and 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 taking care of nature and expanding your mind beyond the kind of like blinders, you know, go to work, buy the stuff at the mall, you know, yeah. come home, watch TV, if that is preferable you know to love thy neighbor and you know you know don't pollute the ocean well you're a fucking asshole and that's why the world is going to hell in a handbasket if the 60s had I mean, was there some you know dark sides of the 60s sure, sure. There's a lot of people who just took some bunch of drugs and then just ended up you know kind of crashing on the curb somewhere and and that was you know uh, unfortunate but like what civilization or what cultural movement doesn't have its its up and its downside. So I think that if the 60s had been taken, if there had been less vilification of psychedelics, if there had been less vilification of, you know, living outside of the workaday, you know, let's, you know, get your kids off to war, you know, if there had been less vilification of that. And the reason it was vilified, in my opinion, is because it threatened the establishment. And the establishment, in my opinion, has and had so much power that it could spin the news. Yeah. And we're seeing it now with, with Trump. You know, I, I read a, a headline, whether it's true or not, who knows, but it was a third of the American people believe <clears throat> that the media is the enemy, the greatest threat to, to, to society. And, yeah. uh, and that's the power of thought control or you know you repeat a lie enough times yeah. it becomes true yeah. um you know that's i believe what happened to the 60s was you know nixon and friends were not having it reagan and friends were not having it and we're just gonna you know play up the consumer american dream get your extra car get your three you know your picket yeah. fence and you're doing it right the, the hippie truths didn't uh didn't hold its own with the kind of the 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 propaganda yeah. that keeps the powers that be in power. You know? Although although some of the central principles of that countercultural movement have been integrated into Absolutely. the greater society, Absolutely. right? Yeah. Like we were saying, racial equality. Racial equality. Not, not to say that there right. is racial equality, but at least There's most been people a, recognize there should be. It's been addressed. Know? People in, aren't, you know, beating necessarily, you know, torturing people of a different race in this in the school. Like to go to a school, a high school in America right now, you're going to see people from all you know, uh, ethnicities and right. people aren't like whispering and throwing spitballs just because your skin is brown. Now, does Although it some of that's starting some to come back starting, now, yeah, but yeah. hopefully this is an aberration. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, 
it's incredible. Just the, the vilification you were talking about. Are you familiar with, um, was it, uh, it was is Nixon's chief of staff, I believe, who gave a, an interview within the last two or three years. Howard Hunt or somebody, I can't remember the name. Um, but someone in the cabinet who was right there, and it was about uh, the war on drugs. Mm-hmm. And he said, he said, look, we knew marijuana wasn't a problem. Right. We knew that LSD wasn't a problem. But black people and hippies were problems. Right. I did hear of this. You remember this? Yeah, just, just in the last few years. And he said the war on drugs was a way to marginalize black people and hippies because they were a political problem for us. They were um, protesting the war. And this was a way to get the leaders of those movements off the streets into prison. Vilified. And Vilified. Yeah. So everybody who's gone to jail for psychedelics and marijuana over the last 40 years has been, what's the word, collateral damage. Yeah. In this fucking war against the leaders of those social yeah, movements. The hobbling of those social movements. Exactly. Yeah. It's yeah. just fucking so cynical. It's yeah. unbelievable. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and, and, and we're seeing the fruits of it. You know, it's uh, I'm interested in the state of the world right now, because as a, a child, you know, as a child of the hippie generation, yeah. as a hippie myself, for all for lack of a better term for it, um, and raising kids, like the whole, the trajectory of activism and we can do this optimism has really shifted for me. And I, you know, I, you know like I was saying, I was, I've done a lot of it and I care a great deal about, you know, the, the betterment of, of people and, the, and, you know, the protections of, of the, you know, the natural world and uh, a global awakening, if you will. You know, I believe in all that stuff I have. I've worked really hard. My parents worked really hard for it. Yeah. Uh, racial equality. My dad worked for the uh, Paiute and Shoshone tribes my whole life and was just a, a really humble servant of making sure that they got whatever they could in terms of rights and their needs met. And yeah, just let's let's clarify about your dad because you said yeah. he was a drunk, but he oh, got he wasn't always together. a drunk, right? He was a, he was a, he was you know it was the '60s, so he yeah. was drinking and yeah. taking acid. My mom tells a story about him uh, take, going out to, to do the laundry at the laundromat, and apparently he'd taken some acid, and she, he didn't come back for like hours and hours and hours. And she goes to the laundromat, he's just there staring at the dryer going around and around or something. I've done you know? that. That's, yeah, yeah, that's yeah. fun. <laughs> Even better is the washer when you get one of those horizontal washers and you can see the suds. Yeah, oh, was the, I love watching yeah, that. So that was the kind yeah. of thing that was going on. And she yeah. just was like, I want to be a great mom. Yeah. Uh, I'm not, this is not kind of up for negotiation how how much care and your dad was an advertising executive yeah my yeah. dad was a, uh, a, a kind of a decorated uh, Madison Avenue decorated uh, advertising agent and yeah. he, you know he won I think the 1968 best ad of the year for some cheese or something cheese whiz <laughs> yeah and he was a tube. super uh, super smart guy Princeton top of his class full scholarship to, to Princeton and Princeton. And he was an academic, right? Yeah. He was an English teacher, and huh. then uh, and then he got into advertising, and he had a family, uh, you know, three kids, a wife, his high school sweetheart. They were living in in New York, doing the ad. This is your thing. mom, my dad. No, this is their family, my dad's family. Bef- yeah, before before he before, met your mom. before he met oh, my mom. So I he's see. like okay. he's got the he was the, he was so like he was straight out box. of Mad Men kind of a right. scene, and then my, but they had a summer home in. Or they rented a summer home in Woodstock. 
Oh. My mom was 18. She'd had black boyfriends. She, you know, is like this beautiful kind of experimental influenced by the hippie culture that was kind of brimming in New York and, uh, you know, in the late 60s or whatever. And um, she was up in Woodstock because her family, she, her family home was the home that my dad was renting, basically. And mm-hmm. she was really drawn to the scene. She'd already been like sneaking out of the house, going up to Woodstock to hear Bob Dylan play. So it was like a place where she wanted to be. So my dad comes up with his family one summer, 68, I think. And my mom is the babysitter, if you know what I mean. <laughs> and uh, she, she gives my dad some LSD. And they end up falling in love, having a fear. He has his mind completely blown, Whoa. goes back to the ad agency and says, you know, I don't, I don't, I, I'm having a hard time doing this. I feel like I'm lying to people. His boss is like, shut up and get back in your desk. Lying to people is your job. <laughs> no shit, and he's man. like, can't do it. And he started teaching poetry at inner city high schools and colleges. And, and then he just decided that he wanted to take his academic, uh, you know, gifts and put them to to a, a use that he believed was worthwhile, and so he started writing grants for uh, the Native American uh, communities. Yeah. And it was really cool because there was a lot of kind of what is that cultural appropriation that you've seen, where the the white person goes to the Sundance, and, 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 and you know, there's it takes all types. And I'm sure that a lot of people who want to be more Native American, if you know what I mean, like I'm mm-hmm. not from this culture, but I wish I was, and I'm yeah. going to earnestly sure. uh, try and walk that path you know i know there's a lot of great people doing that sort of thing but i was always proud of my dad for not being that kind of guy he was he was just this regular dude who who just wanted wanted to do Mm. something that wasn't fucked up you know and that's how what he decided to do so how did that work so so i'm trying to look at your dad's trajectory here so he's got the job on madison avenue distinguished academic career yeah you know high achiever all that yeah wife three kids you said then he goes the falls in love with 18 year old flower child who doses him have their mind blown have an affair in the midst of this kind of like were you conceived in that affair i was conceived in In the first affair like that first yeah babysitter i was born in 69 so in that year when when was the concert at woodstock by the way apologies for the creaky chairs we're we're on these old creaky chairs (laughs) and the cows in the background and the cows Uh, (laughs) exactly so a lot of ambiental (laughs) ambient Um, so yeah, so, yeah and then so, my brother so so that was a great example I mean it was kind of textbook so did he leave his wife and kids yeah and, he left, and, and it was and it was mayhem right yeah. so but it was in the context of free love so you have your mind expanded you have your heart expanded yeah You're like we should all be in one big puppy pile you know yeah yeah you should his wife but what happens when that. you wake up the next morning and right. you're partner and your children are bereft and yeah. there's this conflict yeah. and jealousy and uh, kind of this breaking uh, apart, of, you know, like the wrecked home kind of thing. Yeah. And so, you know, I don't know, you know, people say a lot of your your childhood, you know, early childhood informs your your personality and I don't know what that means about me, but it was from the stories that I heard and what I can only imagine, it probably was pretty freaking stressful have you met his kids yeah i'm friends with my half brothers and half sister uh we don't we don't spend a huge amount of time together but we have maintained friendships over the years the woman his the wife the ex-wife um has always been fairly cool with us as you can imagine (laughs) not not, so it's not it's not it hasn't been one big happy family uh the wife went on to become a 
an early, like one of the first female ministers in some denomination of church, mm. but she could never forgive my mom was kind of her one regret or whatever, you yeah. know, anyways, yeah. uh, that was the sixties. Yeah. That was one of the downsides of the sixties, I think, but you had to break, yeah. you have to break the, you have to smash the idol. Right. And someone's going to get, you know, yeah. well, it's interesting. Like you are like li- even biologically the result of this act of rebellion yeah. that also caused a lot of damage and hurt yeah. people. Yeah, yeah. But and by and large, int- probably caused more good. I mean, I think the what 60s. What caused you? I mean, right, that's pretty cool. Yeah. yeah, but I'm just thinking the 60s as a whole. Yeah, like, yeah. Thank God we kind of snapped out of it to the degree that we did, you know. Mm. Yeah, it's, uh, it's interesting, you know, you were talking about the vilification, how, I mean, I have this, this, uh, emerging idea of about how I think about uh, institutions and, and governments and societies as organisms, and I, I've been thinking mm-hmm. about that a lot and how they defend themselves. And yeah, they have yeah, like yeah, Immunological yeah. responses, oh, yeah. and so there was an immunological response against the hippies, and you can yeah. see like the white blood cells going out and like, yeah. okay, what can we vilify? And, and you see like Altamont. Yeah. Oh, this oh, yeah, disaster. Got sure. Yeah, like one person it got much, killed. Right? I mean, how many people right. got killed at fucking NASCAR rallies that exactly. year? Exactly. But you don't hear about right. that, right? It's not a threat to the establishment. Exactly. Or like, oh, LSD causes, you know, chromosomal damage. And then you right. like track down the research and it was like one fucking loser on in Petri dishes and, and right. distilled water did the or, same amount or of damage. Or just bullshit completely bullshit but it it became the narrative and, exactly and it it's adopted it in the same way that like oh no one lived past 35 exactly it's a it, it defends the status quo yeah. so it becomes true it becomes true and it's yeah. very hard to uproot these things yeah. or the mansons oh my god the mansons the right. most evil thing ever yeah they were at LSD. it was one fucking lunatic and and yeah. four or five women yeah. like, like so what have you seen the number of you know conservative uh you know 25 year old serial killer you know like yeah exactly school shooters. right like, why are we talking about that right like, or how many people died that like that weekend in Vietnam right you know exactly. like 500 or, times right. that or in minute, car right? or in cars so, yeah. yeah whatever yeah. smoking you know it's just like the way things get framed and valued and yeah. highlighted it's so bullshit yeah such bullshit so I, I mean I talk on this podcast a lot about how you know your experience is emblematic of this how you don't need to go to college unless you want to do unless you want to be a fucking brain surgeon right. or pilot or something where right. you need specific training. Yeah. But if you just want to be like a smart, interesting person, well-rounded, just fuck college, yeah. man. Yeah, yeah, go follow your passion. Go, you know, build a gypsy wagon or what whatever. The hell did, how, what was, where was I going with that? What that have to do with the fucking Manson? I don't know. Oh, oh <laughs> like the one thing, the one thing, because I mean, I feel sometimes with this podcast, it's almost like a graduate seminar. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like couple of I mean, you're not yeah. you're not so old but a lot of the people i have on are my age or older than yeah. me and i know that the people listening to this are half our age uh-huh. by and large uh-huh. right yeah and a lot of the emails i get and the you know when i do a a, a group thing i the people come right like generally probably 80 percent guys and they're between 25 and 35 yeah. you know yeah, okay. the bulk yeah. of them hey guys hey, what's <laughs> up? and there's not a lot of like you know frat bro energy yeah, sure. these are like these are guys who, who are thoughtful and they're trying to doing the, they're they're on a growth curve well guys like you and i were yeah. at that yeah. age i think yeah. you know and um and are, probably aspire to stay 
continue to be that way. Hell like yeah. Sort of like, you never stop learning. You never stop growing. Exactly. Type people. Exactly. They don't want to get trapped. Yeah. They don't want to get in that nine to five in a cubicle. Yeah. And yeah. they're like, how the fuck do I avoid it? You yeah. know? Yeah. And uh, which is a good question. Yeah. But the one thing I think is the one thing I would encourage everybody to really learn is critical thinking. Yeah how to recognize bullshit yeah how to notice when the deck is stacked yeah that's a really powerful thing and and i'm always surprised like you were saying uh the 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 majority of people probably think that civilization is the best thing that we've ever done right i've never thought that (laughs) i thought that was a really stupid idea and in high school i spent a huge amount of time like i was like kind of a subliminal advertising nerd like I was looking for someone you know like look how they you know Joe Camel you know his nose was a dick you know you know the way they use sex to sell things it's like who actually is buying stuff because of advertisements they've seen like that that never made sense to me I almost don't believe it to this day that Mm. it works because it doesn't work on me I don't do it by any of that shit you know I don't buy shit I see advertised A because most of it's poison yeah C you know B because most of it's bullshit but I always thought that was so weird that people bought in to the, the what's being sold. You know, it's the Fox News is a great example. It's like, I'm gonna yell at a camera and you're gonna yell at your community what I yelled at the camera. And that's gonna be, who who just swallows things whole? I, I, and so it's, critical, it's the critical thinking thing. It's like, yeah. you know, turn off the freaking news, you know. Or, or watch it and pick it apart. Yeah. You know? Uh, See yourself as a critic and, a, and right. a filter, not as a. And that's a that's a skill you really need to learn. Yeah. You know, you obviously learned it from your mom and your dad. Yeah. You know, your dad yeah. would have been perfectly placed to point so, out the this, bullshit. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, I remember reading uh, a book about it was, called, it was something about the mer- the merchants of truth or something like that. It was a. I wish I could remember the name. I'd love to recommend it to people because it was all about the origins of advertising and in the 20s, how the like the early uh-huh. advertisers, you know, and there's all this stuff, very clearly written stuff like Edward Bernays was featured in the book. You know, he was nope. he was the first sort of advertising guru in the 20s and he started in the 20s and he lived into the 80s, I think wow. he, he got really old. He did all this crazy, like bacon and eggs for breakfast. They, he was hired by the pork industry to sell more pork. How can we sell more pork? He came up with the idea of bacon and eggs for breakfast. That wasn't that didn't exist. It wow. wasn't a thing. I love that guy. No, seriously, it's pretty good. Um, you know, and then like uh, uh, what was it? Virginia Slims in the '60s. Oh you know, God. selling cigarettes to feminists yeah. as a emblem of your feminist liberation, liberation you know yeah. like all this spin crazy doctors. evil shit yeah, but yeah. very effective he also worked for the cia yeah. and he Propaganda came up minister right because it's the same thing it's the same thing he came up with the the idea well we're fighting them over there so we don't have to fight them over here they've been using that since the fucking first world war yeah still using it yeah that's why we're in iraq or yeah. wherever the fuck yeah. we are you know crazy yeah. shit anyway his uncle was sigmund freud Wow. Yeah, yeah it goes wow. deep. That's shit goes deep, deep shit. man. <laughs> but I remember in this book, uh, Stuart Ewan, I think, was the author, E-W-A-N. It's all coming back. Yeah, I read yeah. it in like, the early nice 80s. Nice recall, man. Um, uh, Merchants of Desire, maybe was the name. Anyway, the, the idea, uh, they talked about these early advertising executives, and 
you know, they quote from these, um, you know, manuals. And one of the things was never, if you're an advertising writer, never go to see the truth of what it is you're advertising. So if you're selling chicken, don't ever Ever go go to to the the chicken processing Uh plant. Yeah. Don't even go to a fucking farm. Yeah. Right. Don't even stop eating chicken. (laughs) You're selling a fantasy. Yeah, yeah. You're not selling the thing. Yeah, you don't. Yeah. You don't want it. The less you know about the thing, the truth of yeah. the thing, the better. Right. 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 Yeah. yeah. That's powerful. You ever see um, uh, Seinfeld? Jerry Seinfeld's acceptance speech, where he wins this advertising advertisement of the year award. No. It's unbelievable. Anyone who hasn't seen this, Google it. It's Jerry Seinfeld. It's on YouTube. Uh, Advertising Award. That'll probably bring it up. It's so good. Because he stands there and he literally trashes this room full of advertising executives. Like, you guys sell lies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and, you know, getting people (laughs) to buy things they don't need for, you know, doing that for a living, that's an interesting way to spend your life. He just fucking trashes them. But he does it so nicely that everyone's laughing. Laughing, yeah, it's a rose for you. Oh, man. The whole thing is like, I don't care that the thing I buy is going to break in the first week. There's this... this little period of pleasure between when I see the ad and when I get the thing. I, I'm anticipating how great it's yeah, going to yeah, be. Yeah. It doesn't matter that it, it never ends up fulfills. It's in the gyre. It poisons my child. <laughs> it's, like, it's just ruthless. That's it's great. So beautiful. Bill Hicks does it great. You ever heard his uh, advertisement? Uh, Probably. Skit? I think he's I've like, heard everything. He's like, are there any advertising agents in the audience? You know, And uh, he goes, kill yourself. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, and, and I was like, no, the He's like, where is he going with this routine? You know, no, there's no. This is the. This is it. I'm yeah. not kidding. This isn't a joke. Kill yourself. <laughs> and then he goes on to you know speak about how reprehensible what they do is. Yeah. And yeah. then he goes into this thing where the average. He goes, I know, I know you're out there. The average, like, oh, he's going for that, uh, you know, dark cynical dollar. You know, and then, <laughs> and then he changes it. And they're yeah. like, oh, the yeah. uh, the apathy dollar. Yeah. Oh, that's a good one. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. he was great. I yeah. I love his thing about people. Uh, who do acid and think they can fly and jump out of a window. Yeah. And he's like, come on. What a tragedy. Like- he's like, what an asshole. If you think you can fly, why don't you take off from the ground exactly. like a bird? Exactly. You don't see birds taking elevators up to the roof to see if they can fly. Good riddance. You fucking cleaned yeah. up the gene pool. Exactly. Oh, Bill's the man. Yeah, run down the street, flapping your arms. <laughs> yeah. Do it right. Don't yeah. ruin it for the rest of us. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's so good. I, I, love, I love Bill Hicks. He's, uh, yeah. Do you know Stanhope? You know his work. I do. He's a, he's a he's alive and well. Stanhope. He's alive. I don't know if I call him well. well okay. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I've heard Stanhope talking some. Yeah, yeah. He's sort of the, the Bill Hicks of of, of now. Yeah. yeah. He's he doesn't give a fuck. Yeah. I just saw him live uh, in in Hollywood in L.A. a couple of weeks ago. He did thirty minutes on gang rape. Wow. Yeah, and it was funny. It was really funny. Yeah. I mean, that guy, like, he tightrope. He's out there. He can do it. Yeah, Yeah. he does it. He pulled it off. It was just amazing. He's so good. Yeah, yeah. So, anyway, anyone out there who doesn't know Doug Stanhope or Bill Hicks, do your fucking homework. And the Seinfeld uh, advertising. That's right. I told you. This is like a seminar, right? Like, giving homework. Yeah. Well, I wanted to to talk a little bit about shame and how we are processing what's happening in the world. Because one of the things... I yeah. notice 
and I was telling you about a song called Spent the Day in Cyberspace, and, and the guy's basically referring to, you know, you post a picture of a puppy, or you and your lovely partner, or your kids, or whatever, and everyone goes nuts, Yeah. and you talk about, you know, that, you know, we've broken every heat record, and, you know, the, the you know, what's happening in the oceans. Methane bubbling up yeah, from and, the and, Antarctic. And, and, and people are paralyzed, we're like deer in the yeah. headlight, and no one no one reacts to those things. Not no one, but it's just not. It's the most important stuff going on right now, and there's this kind of like paralysis and this kind of deep. I don't know if it's denial. Even it's it's more like like kind of a a, a sense of despair, maybe that that mm. that makes. And is there is a really some big question like denial, what? Denial and yeah. some it's despair overload. Yeah, I yeah. Think. despair overload. That's a nice way of saying it. And uh, and you know. Like I said, in the 60s and maybe for many activist generations since or or, or people who've tried to turn the ship around, you know, there was a real sense of like, we can do this. You know, all we need is a critical mass and we're going to wake the country or the planet up to these certain issues and we're going to make a change. Right Right now, and, and I'm a lifelong activist, child of lifelong activists, right now it's like, hmm, It'd be nice to wake people up. It'd be nice for us to like uh, become, you know, unified in in the in the efforts that make the world a better place. It doesn't look like we're necessarily going to turn the ship around anymore. Yeah. And that's a big thing. That's a big yeah. change, uh, at least for me. You know, I don't know how your listeners feel about this, but you know, it's a little, it's getting a little Mad Maxy out there. You know, uh, and I think that the the urge to either be in denial and keep you know just hitting by now and 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 getting drunk and 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 tuning out with media and watching movies and just imagining yourself as that there's nothing wrong that's really comforting i mean that's like a that's a that's a that's a powerful balm i imagine for the kind of stress and fear that this particular juncture in history elicits and yeah. uh and so and i think there's a lot of shame uh that we have for fucking up and not knowing what to do, you know? And I don't know why shame is on my mind right now, but I feel like it's an important thing, you know? It's kind of like I've got a friend who is, who has a tendency to react, uh, uh, you know, by getting stressed out or angry, and and then he's pissed at himself for getting mm. stressed out and angry. Mm. And I was like, you know, that's not gonna, that's not gonna kind of diffuse this thing. It's not gonna, you, you need to find a way to relax that tense muscle, you know? And loving yourself and forgiving yourself for having been imperfect is a really good medicine for that, you know. And I think we kind of need to do that now. Like we were born into these cultures, we bought the the party line, we played the game, we went to the mall, whatever. We we all live with cars, we all live with food wrapped in plastic. It's kind of what got us here. Are we all going to grow our own food and and live off the land? Well. Probably not. You know, what's where is this going? I mean, maybe people stop having kids. I think that would be an amazing uh, kind of mass meme or awakening that we could do right now. I think that would be profoundly positive. Um, but if we live like we're living, which is the only way we know how to live, the writing's on the wall. We're 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 heading for a cliff. We, we're already well into the air, off the edge of that cliff in some ways. You know. Yeah. Anyways, I just want to bring it up because I feel like. Why wouldn't we be talking about it right now? And do you think shame is a common reaction to that? Or do you think it might be more personal to you because of where you come from, having worked as an activist? Yeah, I don't know. I, I, I don't it. know. I just bring up shame because I think that it's... I mean, you, you feel a sense of failure around it? 
a collective failure. You know, like yeah. uh, you had said something about oh, the, the, were the was was the sixties a failure? You right. know, um, oh man, this, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of losing my thread here. But uh, do I feel a sense of failure? I think that the visions of the sixties, let's call them, you know, a return to this kind of kinder, gentler, Simpler, less destructive, less consumer, way of, less consumer oriented, yeah. more compassionate to other life forms and, right. and people of different race. You know, what a great bunch, what a great set of values, you know. And so many people carried those values forward and many people, and there was a lot of incorporation of those values into the mainstream, yeah. all positive things. Right. But there has been a huge amount of whatever, you know, like ass bullshit, you know, right. he's like, and if I can, that's such bleeding heart, you know, you know the deal. Sure. And so much of the people who've stayed the course have had to endure that kind of ridicule from the, you know, kind of dominant paradigm. Right. And that's been painful for sure. us who have said, you know, no, I, I I am unapo- I, I am unapologetically going to give a damn in the face of little to no agreement. Yeah. I'm going to give a damn. I give a damn. And you can say I don't give a damn or you can say I'm full of shit or you can say whatever, you know, that's for losers. Yeah. But I don't agree. And yeah. I think that the, 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 where we're at historically is very evident of that. You know, yeah. we've, got, we've, we've, we've abandoned air quality or carbon, you know, Jimmy Carter knew what was going on. The hippies were right. It's a it's it's a no brainer. It's yeah. a no brainer, and yet, being right is such a shitty currency. You yeah, know, there's especially no... when you're right about the end of the world, right? Because <laughs> everyone doesn't want to hear it, yeah. Unless you, because it, it 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 threatens the paradigm. Like yeah. I was going to get a job and get a Porsche, because that looks cool, and it's everyone else is doing it. Yeah. And if if you're right, then I have to drop out of this game, and I don't get to spend my time thinking that getting the new fashion of the month is going to make me happy. I have to become an activist. I have to like live, you know, I've got to raise honeybees. Like it's, I don't even know a thing about honeybees, you know, yeah. like let's pretend it's not so let's not and say we did or whatever, you yeah. know? And so I think that's a big part of the heartbreak for me is that it was, it's really important stuff that the group didn't adopt as a, as a whole. And now we're, you know, I'm going to use the term "we're fucked." Um, you know, there's a lot of ways maybe we're not fucked, but yeah, no, I, th- I think we're fucked. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So it just pisses. It's kind of a piss off. It's yeah. you know, there's no, like I said to say, "See, I told you," or like yeah. the hippies told yeah. you. It's just worthless at yeah. the end of the world, as it were. You know, yeah. it's just a sad uh, sh- shred of a tattered rag to have known uh, deeply what we should be doing and done your done your best kind of. And have it have it kind of have been pissing in the wind, and then have people wake up and like, huh, what's happening? Oh shit, you know. So, anyways, I think shame. Um, maybe shame isn't the 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 right you know the right framework. I'm ashamed of, of the human species, I guess. You oh know? yeah, and I I'm and I'm a, and I'm a human, and I so I, I carry this sure. like, what yeah. the fuck is wrong with what us? Is, why why couldn't yeah. we get this together? You know, yeah. and and judging judging other people is a bit uh, kind of a handy tool in some yeah. ways, like having been fighting for the good fight it's like yeah kind of what's wrong with you assholes get your head out of your ass that sort of thing is is kind of part of the the language of activists in a world like in a culture like the one we're in also worthless you know yeah the whole thing i mean you know see i the way i feel about it is it's like we are um i don't know we're we're individual salmon in a school yeah and, you know, when you get enough salmon together, they school. It just yeah. happens. Yeah, 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 right? yeah, yeah. 
tribal and, thing and group herd animal thinking kind of thing. Yeah, exactly. And it's an emergent phenomenon, mm-hmm. right? It doesn't exist until there's a certain number of individuals and then it emerges. And the 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 school is swimming into the nets. And you and I are like, there's Dory. a fucking net up there. You know, and your mother yeah, and your yeah, father yeah, yeah, and, yeah. and the, you know, Andy Weil yeah, yeah. and the people we know and love in our little yeah. microcosm have for years been saying, there's a fucking yeah, net. Don't do way. it. Don't do it. Yeah. But the school's the school and the school does what it does. And there aren't. See, this is the thing. It's like. I don't know if this if this leads me to greater despair or it excuses something, but this this idea I've been working on the the superorganism uh-huh. removes responsibility in a sense that there are no leaders. There's no lead fish or or there's no lead bird in a uh-huh. flock. It's like right? coagulation. It of happens, sorts. Yeah. and everybody is part. Everybody is subservient to some invisible intelligence that takes over. Yeah. And by intelligence, I don't mean it's intelligent necessarily. Yeah. It could be Phenomenal totally you know, self-defeating and self-destructive. But yeah, there's this, there's this guiding principle that emerges and, and guides the, the movement of the group. And it doesn't matter who we convince. Yeah. It doesn't, like the example I often use is, you know, if the, if the head of Exxon went and uh you know his babysitter gave him some acid and he showed up at work the next week saying oh my god we have to stop this deep water drilling because yeah. the truth is we d- we don't know how to control a spill yeah, if yeah. one of these things goes yeah. it's going to be another yeah. environmental disaster that guy will be Fire. out of a job by yeah. noon yeah. right that's right and if if the board of directors all took a bunch of acid and they're like no we're with that guy the shareholders would replace them within a week yeah so how do we get the shareholders some acid <laughs> Exactly. Exactly. So my point is this idea that there are people in positions of leadership, like you said, Jimmy Carter knew. I I agree. Jimmy Carter, you know, put solar panels on the fucking White House. But it doesn't matter because even if they know they can't stop the train. Right. 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 It's it's the school thing. Yeah. So so I kind of feel like that leads me to a sense of hopelessness. But it also leads me to believe that the only way to stop this is for is scale. Mm-hmm. That you need to reduce the number of salmon to the point where they de-school. Mm, I like that. Right, and they and so human populations at low levels. We behave differently. Yeah. We're egalitarian. Yeah, 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 yeah. We're, we're instinctively aligned toward justice. Yes. What's that and helping each other? Like the little village phenomenon. It's like a certain number of people. Do you know about this? Yeah. Um, like it's like hundred. It's like five hundred people. Like if you're in a community of five hundred people, people don't let people live in the gutter. Yeah. Can you hit pause? Real yeah. Quick? I'm just, <laughs> so right. we are back. We are back. Uh, we were just. Um, uh, Charis had to go talk to. Um, a cattle rancher about fixing fences. Yeah, now, if that isn't a goddamn cowboy thing. scenario. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. He, he's been fixing. I was supposed to fix him with him, but uh, uh, my it, fault, my bad. I'm enjoying this. There's nothing against running chainsaws and carrying <laughs> logs. I tell you, but this is really wonderful and fun to be doing together. So you were talking about like uh, there's a number, sort of a magical number. I think you're talking about Dunbar's number, which is Robin Dunbar is an evolutionary biologist who found that there's a correlation between the size of the neocortex. 
in primates and the size of a social group, a manageable social group. Yeah. And so he looked at baboons and he said, well, about 70. And then you look at baboons and I'm not sure 70 is the right number, but you, it correlates and he finds like all across primates. If you look at the brain, you can predict the size of the social Interesting. group. Interesting. Right. Interesting. So he looked at human brains and he figured 150 is what the human neocortex predicts. And then they look at all these hunter-gatherer groups and they find, yeah, when a hunter-gatherer groups get even if there's enough food in the environment to support them all, they tend to s- split off. Yeah, not not in hostility. Just yeah. and the idea is that that's the maximum number of people that you can you can like think of as individuals. They, yeah. That's all your brain can handle, and everything above that. You can that, know those people in some way, their a mean, face, some meaningful way. You can care about them. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And even like people have ten thousand Facebook friends. Uh, they've done studies, they're only really interacting with about 150 yeah. maximum, yeah. right? So that's my feeling that when we get above that number, other people become abstractions, yeah. and then we're able to do things without the emotional that's right. feedback. People fall between the cracks. Right. I mean, stockbrokers will rip off anonymous grandmothers, yeah. empty their retirement right. accounts. We'll step over a homeless person on the street because right. it's not Johnny's mom, right. brother. Exactly. You know, it's not exactly. the kid I went to high school with. The group is too large to Down care. at the country club, they, they take care of each other. Right. They care about each right. other. But yeah it's so it's it, so to me that's the key we have to dial down the scale yeah and then we become more decent human, creatures yeah, again decent, yeah. more human yeah. literally yeah. human yeah. exactly yeah yeah well and that yeah so this i like this idea of the kind of you know kind of group mind out of control i think is one of the things that we're talking about yeah and, and that's what seems to be the the problem on the planet right we're we're devouring resources we're you know not you know if if you don't see the the victims you know i'll take another latte you know kind of thing yeah and you know it's heartbreaking uh and yet you know uh stars extinguish you know every single one of us is going to drop dead and always have and we have to come to terms with uh, uh mortality you know, whether it be on a cosmic yeah. scale or on a personal scale, yeah. every and on a personal scale, we all have been dealing with it for the entire existence of human humanity. What yeah. Were you, what were you no, I just read this article yesterday uh, in the New Yorker about these Silicon Valley executives who are funding. Uh, what they think is research that's about to prove to, uh, into immortality. That, right. Like, oh, no, we're about to solve the death problem. Yeah. Go, and baby. You and I were, you, we were talking about... Uh, <laughs> Good luck with that. Yeah. Well, this article's just amazing. It's in The New Yorker, which is uh-huh. normally a really, like, well-thought-out research. Thought yeah. out research. And it's just full of nonsense. One of the, I was thinking it would be great uh, teaching tool for a critical thinking class, mm. which I sometimes think about doing yeah. as a like a podcast branch off, like just do a critical thinking class online somehow. Um, but one of the things in this article was they quoted a guy who's like the head of a research center into longevity research. And he says, well, in the developed world, we've um, added 10 years to human longevity uh, in each of the last three uh, decades or something like that, or two years in, yeah. in each of the last three decades, if we could keep that uh, curve going, you know, we'll be up to 200. In like the something. exponential curve or something. And it's like, dude, he doesn't even understand that they've added 
two years by eliminating child mortality. Yeah, that's how they've yeah, by, by reducing. Child, he doesn't understand that most basic yeah. point. Also, you haven't you haven't extended the active life of people. You've yeah. slowed down how right. they die. One more stint. One more <laughs> colostomy. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. It's incredible. Yeah. Anyway, so. We're talking about uh, so dealing with mortality. Yeah. A lot of people, a lot of very wealthy people, yeah. think they don't even have to deal with that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Poor miserable Bastards. fuckers. <laughs> <laughs> I, yeah, no, it's it's crazy. Yeah, we do. You know, whatever. If it becomes possible to not deal with mortality for some set of the population, then I can only happen. assume that it's going to be a very small, wealthy group that gets to enjoy that and fuck those people. And I don't think they're <laughs> going to enjoy it anyway. No, exactly. They're That's not going to enjoy it. I just heard, I read something in the New Yorker, which was like a couple weeks ago, and it was, I don't remember what the name of the article was, but it had this like kind of grim reapery guy on a boat, and there was all these kind of refugee people like trying to, you know, survive in the, the, in the ocean. It was very dark mm. art. And, you know, I don't know what it was called. P- Apocalypse may have been in there. Mm. A surviving may have been in there. But, you know, it was basically about how this this futurist was invited to he gets speaking at all these conferences and he's invited to this island where there's a bunch of wealthy, you know, venture capitalists or whatever. And he's just assuming it's going to be the same show where he gets up and talks about, you know, CRISPR and different things to invest uh, in. Did you yeah, read this one? I did read this. And they were talking about like, they, like, they just sat do down. Prepare? How do we prepare for the yeah. apocalypse? You know, do we have robotic guards? You know, yeah. how do you, you know, how do we yeah. get a, you know, the whatever, right. the underground virtual, how do I New upload Zealand? my brain to the, to the <laughs> cloud? A, yeah, exactly. This is like, you motherfuckers are going to be so miserable when yeah. it's just you yeah. and freaking Mark Zuckerberg and Jeff Bezos and some robotic sex slaves. You poor sucks. This yeah. is like the, it's like it's, it's it's the person with the most toy wins thinking. Right. It's the it's the pyramid scheme, and it's like there's no group of people I'd rather not be with. I would yeah. much rather accept my I'd mortality. Exactly. In a fucking bunker watching <laughs> National Geographic specials on animals that have been extinct for a hundred like. years. Yeah, you know. Yeah. So, but that's. I mean, I guess that's the point. Is like we aren't supposed to be here very long. I mean, when right. you look at the arc of. Well, what is it? The arc of infinity, you know, infinite. The space is space is infinitely deep. Uh, time seems to be infinitely deep in both directions, uh, down into the nano, you know, molecular, subatomic. Mm. Infinity is the deal. So when compared to infinity, the human life isn't a joke, but it's certainly not the game. It's certainly not the the game. Yeah, the game is not the human life. We're doing it. We have to do it. We're, we wake up into it every day. So what I think, and it gives me comfort, and I try and uh, instill this kind of philosophy in, with my kids, is that if we identify with the ego, for example, or with the self, or with the family, or with the race, the tribe, the nation, we inevitably are in a fear state, a, a relative fear state, because we're gonna. We can't keep those things. We can't keep the our life. You know, our, our egos are bullshit and fragile. And and you know, when you have a near death experience, or you die, or you take a, a a meaningful dose of a psychedelic, you you see that your don't your, that your identity is such a kind of petty, superficial hmm. film upon hmm. this brilliant, deep, ancient mind-blowingly complex and beautiful, you know, arguably love-based, infinite, let's call it a collective being. Whatever created all this shit clearly knows what it's doing. Hummingbirds, mangoes, monkeys, and 
that is so profound and it's such a beautiful thing to kind of orient towards. So I say, don't identify with yourself, your body, because that's, you gotta let that go. Yeah. So if you identify with, if you like the idea of life on earth continuing and you're sad about the pandas being endangered and whatnot, don't identify with the self, that's going. Life, hopefully, would continue and survive, you know, global warming and whatnot as a bacteria or a sludge or whatever. So identify with that. If you if that brings you comfort to think life on Earth has to survive or we failed somehow, we did a horrible crime, then identify with life itself. So that as you let go of your urge to cling to your life or cling to your success or whatever, you you can take solace in that life is probably gonna be fine on this planet. And if it's not fine on this planet, it's gonna be fine in the infinite cosmos in every direction. And even if life itself doesn't exist anywhere here, and I know there's some theories that it might not, it's just kind of stupid that it might not, but whatever. Energy. I mean, let still it be, exists. let it be. And, yeah. and so one of the things that we started doing with our kids, much to you know, because they were interested also, was meditating with them. We yeah. we we, we downloaded the Headspace app, and I always thought like meditation with the app, what a bad idea. Turns out it's a really good idea. It's a, at least for us, it's been working. There's a, it's a guided meditation, and mm. they've got these little cartoon videos that kind of give analogies about the mind as you know being cluttered and how you clear and just take a few minutes of your day and just let the chaos drop away, and you access this place that is not the worries of the day, that's not the concerns of the self. And we do this as a family. It's so cool. We get an 11-year-old, a 15-year-old, a mom and I sitting on pillows out under the trees. And it's just been one of the sweetest things we've done. Uh, I really think that psychedelics are a great medicine and should be treated probably more like a, a, a food supplement. Uh, I had some powerful psychedelic experiences like many of your listeners probably and certainly many of your uh, guests on the podcast. But, um, you know, going to the mountaintop and seeing, you know, you know, I saw God, you know, we're all one. It's all love. Man, that's some powerful shit. And, you know, my experience with microdosing has been that that state, that sense of right behind the curtain is this eternal existence, this eternal being, this eternal wholeness that has the power to create all the things that we were so impressed by in this dimension. Oh, you know. And it has the power to destroy it. And that destruction is a, a, such a natural and beautiful and absolutely necessary part of this, whether it's the destruction of the earth or what have you, um, that that's such an unshakable self to identify with because it's infinite. And I feel like that can be really great medicine right now as we mm. fear the death of whatever it is, our ego, our body, our nation, our earth, just got to go, you know, and that's okay, you know, because it, it is, there's no, it's never been any other way, you know. I like to think of civilization kind of like a slow meteor hitting the earth. Like we could have been in Shangri-La on this planet for, you know, thousands and thousands of years and woke up one day and have a meteor just destroy the whole place. But instead, civilization has been like this blossoming meteor where we've created all these beautiful things cell phones and planes and world travel and yeah i like that telecommunication blossoming distraction and, and, yeah. and we've got to savor yeah. this kind of 
you know, what can we do? Uh, how can we make this death an interesting one? You know, how yeah. can we make this undoing, like, fascinating? And we've done an amazing job of fucking this thing up. Like, what an interesting <laughs> way to go. You got to go somehow. So that's kind of my, my yeah. sense of things. Yeah. You're one of the guys you had on your show. Um, that's funny. Bruce, Bruce Gamer, Gamer yeah. <clears throat> you know, for those of, of your listeners who didn't hear the episode, check it out. He is that guy is far out. He's really in, cool, in huh? every direction. Like uh, really interesting, very respected scientist, but he's a origins of life, you know, authority, yeah. whatever you want to call that. Well, and also space travel, design spaceships, and uh, he's on the Mars. The, he's on the Mars uh, land site mission designing co- uh, it committee, <laughs> and then like a yeah. total far out Burning Man hippie yeah. who's got some stuff that could be qualified as some of the most far out New Agey stuff yeah. that yeah. people have judgments about far out New Agey stuff would just their skin would crawl <laughs> and this guy is like a ninja on multiple scientific <laughs> yeah. fronts and respected yeah. by doctors across the yeah. aisles yeah interesting yeah. guy <clears throat> but he talks about you know i'm going to just kind of you know paraphrase what you sure. already know because you had him on your show and you're friends with him but he talks about um that there wasn't really an origin there wasn't like the first you know uh, tadpole first in a pond thing that yeah. it was this ever kind of like a, a ever evolving complex, like a, a sludge that appeared mm. and continued to come, become more and more complex, such that the sludge uh, developed these techniques for uh, survival and distribution. Capturing energy, you know. The, yeah. the you know the the Earth was so volatile and violent with yeah. storms and volcanoes, and and this sludge would just keep getting split and chucked and uh, reformatted and reintroduced to these like interaction things, and then it started creating these little fruit bodies almost of of greater aspects of it, which were tricky yeah. and could preserve itself and could remember and save DNA, you know, yeah. save biological useful information, information. Yeah. and that, you know, fast forward to what we are now, we are a very complex sludge. You know, you and I sitting here talking, we are free, you know, we appear to be independent of the sludge. We walk across it. Mm. And he used this term grazers on the mat. I, I love that. Yeah. that. It's like yeah. we are but the grazers on the mat of the sludge that we are. Yeah. And the idea that, you know, talk about we are one, like, wow, there you know, we're yeah. not it's not a competition. I mean there is some of that, but yeah. anyway, this kind of goes back to that identifying life itself began as community. Yeah. yeah. And and it's easy to imagine that yeah. that fractal holds true out into the infinite universe and that is the true sludge that we are we're not mm. just the sludge that appeared on the surface of this one ball spinning right. through right. around one sun we are the great cosmic sludge the stardust sludge the infinite sludge that's who i identify as hmm. that's where i take infinite sludge infinite sludge i am but the infinite sludge playing a little puppet Whoa, a little chair collapsing i think <laughs> it is uh, here i trade you i won't bring you <laughs> here you go uh, this one's better because uh, it's not gonna kill uh, yourself okay and sorry. we're back all right i'm gonna i'm gonna take that out i got all right, we're back. My chair collapsed at, at Infinite Sludge. That was all we could take. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, I understand what you're saying. Like, identify with some some principle larger than that which is Destined involved to, in this 
to current collapse. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I and, think and that's our, probably a good idea. And our personal death is a yeah. is a current collapse that we have to grapple with. So there's a yeah. there's, there's a, a collective PTSD happening, uh, pre-traumatic yeah. stress disorder. I think. Yeah, yeah we're all uh, like hyper aware of our own individual mortality because we're looking at some greater, yeah. greater collapse. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's crazy. Um, yeah, joyful. What's the line? Uh, the Buddhist line I always use: "Life is joyful participation in the sorrows of the world." Oh wow, that's really sweet. Yeah. Yeah, I think that kind of captures both sides of it. You yeah, know? yeah, 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 yeah. It's... And being at peace with is such. I mean, you you know, you know that scenario where someone's freaked out about being freaked out about all the freaky shit going on. It's right. like that doesn't help. You yeah, know? yeah. To be able to, my mother used to say, uh, I'm sure she read it in a, in a in a like a Buddhist manual or something, but it was. Uh, to keep your heart open in hell is the greatest yoga. And I always thought that was pretty cool because mm. you're going to run into some hell, you know? And if you can maintain like a kind of a, a Zen grounded kind of infinite tether to something right. bigger than you, and you can mod bring peace into your situation, bring joy, bring laughter. I mean, laughter is such amazing medicine for tragedy. and. It's all we have, ultimately. You know? <laughs> the ever, the ever more the case. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, which, which, you know, to to be careful here, we're not talking about surrender. Yeah, we're almost talking about the opposite of surrender. That you, that when you panic and yeah. when you're overwhelmed, you become yeah. useless. You're, you're paralyzed. paralyzed. Yeah, yeah. You're, you're, you can't do shit. Oh, yeah. So it's like you know, everyone says in a in a in a, when something you get lost in the woods. What's the number one thing? Don't panic. Yeah. Don't start running around without thinking. Yeah. Sit down. Yeah. Shut up. Yeah. Be quiet. Yep. Calm yourself down. Yeah. So I kind of feel like that's, in a way, that's sort of what you're saying. Like in this current tragedy, Don't, we, we need to be calm and yeah. quiet and think shit through. And, and, be, and go deep. In. And, 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 and the, yeah, I think that's right. Yeah, this is some Bruce Lee shit we're talking about. You know, this is not about losing your vitality. It's not about giving up. <clears throat> There's so much not to give up on. Yeah. Loving your family. Right. You know, finding the beauty in the world, having uh, expand, mind expanding, heart expanding experiences where you can be of service to your fellow humans, you know, to help be a bomb and an inspiration to there's a lot of fear right now and, yeah. and and there's much need for for at very least i mean mourning you know like the loss we can't be in denial of the pain and the fear and and the sense of sadness around loss uh but we have to we have to go through it and by going through it we have a deeper vessel for joy a deeper vessel for laughter a deeper vessel for love and ultimately we're more useful and i'm not advocating that people give up on activism i think activism is so fun and so nurturing and so nourish uh, so so inspiring and mm. it's it, what else are you going to do like we order another domino's pizza and play you know uh you know what's that car game with the you run over people uh grand theft auto mm. and just watch fucking tv is that going to make you happy hell no it's not gonna make you happy you know get out there and make your community a better place yeah even if rome is burning even right. if you, even if you could see the future and recognize the whole thing's done and whatever what else are you gonna do? Right. Bring joy right. and, and give a damn and kick some ass. It's you're gonna be happier. Right. Everyone around you is gonna be happier. It's gonna be more interesting. Right. You know, that's that's and always who knows? Been the case. Who knows how that energy ripples out into the universe. Yeah. Who knows? Can we finish with a wrap? Do you uh yeah, yeah. you you've talked about can we wrap with my, a wrap? My bad yeah, let's wrap with a wrap. Um 
Yeah, so back like you were saying when we opened this up, uh, my uh, former in my former life, uh, I was an alternative fuels uh, advocate, and my handle, my nickname was the Granola Ayatollah of Canola, and that's because that was I had this kind of farm boy rap. I'm living in Tennessee, growing my own food, but I'm a product of the '80s. You know, when I was in high school, rap was the thing, and I'm out there. But I knew I wanted to be this back to the land guy, but I couldn't shake this. <laughs> from my high school, right? So I'm out there alone in the hills of Tennessee growing food and I've got this, you know, eight oh you know, bass, you know, kick drum eight oh eight in the background. Yeah. And so I started writing these kind of ecological farm boy raps <clears throat> and when I got into biofuel, I, I wrote some biofuel raps and one of the lines was uh now you know my name is Charles, but I think it's time I told you I'm also known as the granola ayatollah of canola kicking <laughs> Well, that was one of my later raps. But most of my raps were, were farm, you know, back to the land inspired. Uh-huh. And uh, my the first rap I wrote was at the permaculture conference at the Hot Springs Commune where I met my wife when she was 16 and I was 19. And her mom had hosted this permaculture conference. And one of the things that ha- – it's like a two-week uh, training, which they still do, which I highly recommend to anyone hmm. who gives a damn about giving a damn and likes to connect with um, – you know, who's interested in gardening or anything. Really? Oh, uh, permaculture design uh, courses are awesome. Oh, okay. You mean in general, not that one in specific. In general. In if general, you have right. a permaculture design course in your community and you feel like you want to get more connected to nature and just to yourself – uh, highly recommend. Good medicine. Good, good, fun, interesting stuff. Anyways, one of the lecturers at some point said, you know, most of the world eats bugs. You know, the American diet, the mm. European diet doesn't have insects unless you want to count lobsters and shrimp, which are certainly insects. But, you know, most, you know, they, there's grub worms being eaten, you know, grasshoppers, oh, yeah. crickets. It's like a, it's it's the norm for the masses on right. planet Earth. And I thought, really? That's so cool. And so <clears throat> my first rap that I wrote was a bug eating rap. And all my raps are kind of short. So if you want to hear a couple of them, I can sure. do that. But I need something I can beat on. Not the table. Not the table. Yeah. Let's yeah. see. Uh, uh, let me see. Uh, maybe could you? Well, let me see if I get this. That sounds good. Okay, I'm gonna move the mic. We're gonna do this. Okay, here we go. Well, entomology in the place to be. The whole world's eating bugs, baby. Why aren't we? Well, I got this freaky habit. I like to eat maggots. I find myself a bug and then I cold bag it and I put it in my sack. I sling it on my back. I'm gonna take it on home. Gonna fry it for a snack. Come climb a tree, cause that shit is free. We're gonna go and eat the larva of a honeybee. Crawl behind a thicket, grab yourself a cricket. You don't like what I'm eating, you know where you can stick it. Does the thought of eating grub worms make your belly squirm? Bringing out the goosebumps on your epidermis. Police don't think I'm bogus. This ain't no hocus pocus. You can dry roast locusts, stir fry cockroaches, kick it. <laughs> <laughs> There you go. And all that's that the time beautiful. Change, the wow. time changes are another chair is another chair down. We're now. going through them today. <laughs> all right, ladies and gentlemen, where else are you going to hear a rap about eating bugs? I ask you. That was Charles Ford. If you want to check him out in greater depth, go to the Monkey Tooth podcast. Uh, and there are a couple episodes there with him. One talking about his early life. And um, as I mentioned before, 
out this week is another one about this week being um, late October. There's one about um, where uh, Andrew interviews Charles. kids and his wife and they really get more into the family dynamic. Uh, thanks. Thanks again for listening to this. I'm going to play you out with one more Charis Ford rap. This one's about mushrooms. So hope you dig it. And uh, I will catch you next time. Here's to you, Justin and Bennett. Well, you can find them in the forest. You can fry them in a pan. Why don't you step into the kitchen with the mushroom man? A foliota squarosa, Corfola frondosa. Don't always say the Latin names the way that I'm supposed to. Fungal forms will fall in families of animals or plants. I'll do my best to tell you about them. Give me a chance. They got this unique physiology, and they cannot be classified in any way as botany. Excuse me while I drop a little terminology. Mycologist is fancy for a mushroom freak, and the study of the mushroom family is mycology, and some of them are poisonous is a many you can eat and some of them will literally lift you off your feet and some can cure cancer some help them folk with aids and they prefer environments with moist ground and partial shade they'll kick it he said baby what's a big deal feel what you want to feel say what you want to say you're gonna die one day For example, I could kiss you Just because I want to What's the difference if you turn away? I'm gonna die one day Why do you waste your time Thinking about your reputation Trying to meet an expectation Wondering what they're gonna say Doesn't ask for much A little music and a soft touch Why don't you let it out to play Your heart is in a birdcage Singing in your chest You wanna shut it up but give it a rest You're gonna die one day Why do we waste our time Thinking about a reputation to the ground.